Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Hi, and welcome to the Fair Perspectives podcast, the official podcast of the pro-human movement, brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Today, we speak with Michael Shermer, who is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, the host of The Michael Shermer Show, and a presidential fellow at Chapman University, where he teaches the class Skepticism 101. For 18 years, he was a monthly columnist at Scientific American. He's the author of several New York Times bestsellers, including Why People Believe Weird Things, The Believing Brain, Why Darwin Matters, The Moral Arc, and more. In this episode, we discuss conspiracy theories, group identities and differences, tribalism, systematic racism, religion, and more. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Michael Shermer. Michael Shermer, thank you for joining us. Nice to see you. Nice to be here. Nice to uh, kick off the week here. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's a great start for sure. Uh, so, so much, um, I'm sure Melissa as well, but so much I want to talk to you about. There's so much that there is to talk about. Um, but one thing that really struck me just prepping for this, I watched this TED talk that you did. The video said 13 years ago. I'm not sure if that's just the video or that's when you did no, it. No, that, that was uh, 2006 was my first TED talk in Monterey when T Ted was still small yeah. and there were no, there were no videos. Uh, I mean, in fact, they, they recorded our talks and then like a year later they said, Hey, we're thinking about this crazy idea of posting the talks online. <laughs> and, right. uh, it's like, well, okay, let's see how that goes. <laughs> and it went yeah. big, you know, it went huge. Yeah, it was beautiful. Yeah. And yeah, they had a little bit of an intro saying, you know, we're, we're trying this crazy thing where we're going to show you what it was like. Um, but yeah, you had, yeah. you had this great energy and you, you kind of even kicked it off with this kind of carnival barker type thing. Like, you know, we are skeptics. We, we debunk and deframe and, you know, all these, this great, yes. this great spiel that you had. And then you, you get into a few, um, you get into a few things like, you know, you use this, this ridiculous $900 marijuana dousing rod that was being, oh, yes, yes, teachers, yes. you know, and we talk about, you talk about, um, the Virgin Mary on a piece of toast and all that kind of stuff. And, and something I have it really right here. Me. Yeah, there it is. I have yeah. it right here. <laughs> I keep amazing. it handy in case I, in case I can detect you guys. All right. There's something going on here, right Ooh. there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's too funny. Right. So, yeah, the thing that, that really struck me, I mean, I'm, I'm watching it. I'm laughing. I'm loving what you're saying. I'm totally with you, of course. And the crowd is loving it. And you have this kind of, you know, there, there's such a lighthearted feel to so much of what you were saying, even though there was incredible substance there. 
But the thing that really struck me, especially because it's, it's, been, it's been quite a while, the thing that really struck me was that this kind of used to be fun. It kind of used to be, you know, the things that we're, we're combating are almost overwhelmingly considered silly. You know, these things like it's very fringe, very kind of small minorities who are really into this stuff. And the vast yeah. majority of people can kind of chuckle about it. But we're not yeah. really in that situation right now. We're, we're, we're in a different kind of mode where the, the situation seems much more dire and the stakes seem so much higher, even though the, the level of stuff that we're debunking is kind of intellectually the same. You know, like yes. it's just as silly and just as ridiculous, but it doesn't feel as lighthearted. Like I don't imagine you'd make, you'd do a similar TED talk where it's has that many laughs. I'm curious what you know. My, my talk now would be my talks now are more uh, directed toward conspiracy theories and why people believe them. In fact, that's my next big book, which uh, I just turned into the publisher and it'll be out next summer. Basically this has become serious. I mean, they're in the White House. They're in the Capitol Dome. I mean, the rigged right. election is a conspiracy theory. QAnon, that's a conspiracy theory. You know, and all the, the elements of those which have uh, parts that have come before from previous conspiracy theories all kind of woven into one. And clearly it's not. You, you said it perfectly. It's not just, you know, a handful of fringe nutballs with their tinfoil hats, you know, blogging out of their parents' basement. I mean, this is, you know, the top officials. I mean, Congress people, the president himself was a you know, kind of conspiracist in chief. And this gets at my life's work of, you know, trying to understand why people believe weird things, the title of my first book. Well, that's a weird thing, QAnon. So what's going on there? And so I explore that theme in the next book, uh, that it's a kind of a proxy conspiracism, I call it, that QAnon is a stand-in for something else, because no one could possibly believe that, you know, Hillary Clinton <laughs> is leading this secret satanic pedophile cult out of a pizzeria in Washington, D.C., you know, with the help of Tom Hanks and Beyonce. I mean, this <laughs> this is just Looney Tunes. Right. And uh, but, but so when when Republicans and it's mostly Republicans, you know, something like a third say that, you know, they think it's possible that QAnon conspiracy theory is true. Uh, you know, can can they really believe that? I mean, really? I mean, what, are, what does it mean to believe something? Well, one guy did. Edgar Welch, he went there with a gun uh, with an AR style uh, rifle to shoot up the place to rescue the children. I mean, he believed it, you know, and he was quite shocked when he got there and discovered there's no basement at the Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria in Washington, D.C., much less a pedophile ring. He shot up in the ceiling. He went, went to jail for uh, for a few years, but uh, and then was apologetic and you know kind of said, "I went down the rabbit hole of believing this stuff." But I think when someone like a Ted Cruz or even a, a someone like a Marjorie Taylor Greene says, "Yeah, there's something to that," I think what they mean is that's the kind of thing Democrats would do, or that's the kind of thing Hillary and Bill Clinton would do. So this is why we don't like them. So even if you point out, well, there is no conspiracy at the pizzeria that that's kind of irrelevant it, it's whether it's true or not is not the point it's that we don't trust the democrats or and this is this is true for most conspiracy theories you know that you know, that, that they have to do with power who has it who doesn't and who thinks somebody else has power and what they're doing with it so it could be corporate power that people are suspicious of like a lot of the anti-vaxxers are suspicious of big pharma you know somebody's making money on those vaccines you know i don't trust them or uh, big government, you know, conservatives tend to distrust big government. Uh, liberals tend to distrust big corporations. So because of the fear of power and control, you know, so much of the narrative around vaccines and mass has, is, is uh, about power and control. They're trying to control us, right? 
And uh, so that's, you know, again, the specifics are kind of a proxy stand in for something else that's lying deep beneath that, that tags people's emotions and gets them to believe it. Yeah. Well, and you know, what's interesting, I mean, you mentioned a lot about the right and those kind of, that kind of brand of conspiracism, but there's, I don't know if it's an, I don't know if it's fair to call it an equivalent brand, but there's certainly a, a, a potent brand of that sort of thing on the other end. And, and it seems like the concern is the same. It's about power. It's just kind of, yes. you know, it's pointing in different directions, but it's really all about, you know, we can't let them take over whatever. And I'm curious, <laughs> right. uh, I'm curious about, there must be some, some, you know, human thing that's just uh, connecting all of us with that sort of, you know, that, that fear and that there's kind of a human thing going on, I feel like. And I'm curious what you think yeah, in yeah. terms of, the different ways that those things manifest is really interesting. Yes. That, I, I think there is an element there uh, that my, my second component of my belief model module for conspiracies is tribal conspiracism. That is, you know, we're social creatures. We want to belong to a group, uh, you know, starting with our family and friends and extended family and so on. But then it, it, it goes out to our clan or tribe or political party or religious group or whatever. And so conspiracy theories that, uh, reinforce our group's belief, our tribe, and denounces the other tribe as being not just wrong, but immoral, evil people. And we've seen this, again, more polarized in, in, in political culture and social um, groups today, more than ever before, is super polarized, such that congressmen on the other side of the aisle are not just wrong. We don't just disagree with them. Uh, they're, they're evil, and we have to denounce them, can't talk to them. Much of that is fueled by social media and talk radio and, and talk television and so on. That just makes it worse. But it's tapping something in human psychology having to do with tribalism and that it's so easy to uh, you know, have high sympathy for your group and high uh, enmity for the other group. And uh, you know, that's, that's very troubling for going forward into the next election. Dr. Shermer, I have a question for you because, you know, what is actually considered a conspiracy theory, sometimes seems to be mediated by tribalism itself. Um, so I can think of one very good example, which, which came up this year um, in 2021. And that was the idea of the lab leak hypothesis when it came to the origins of COVID-19. Um, right. It was considered a conspiracy until it wasn't, until it was a plausible hypothesis. And, yeah. and how that became not a lightning rod in public discourse was very interesting because we saw it happen in real time. And what was once a far-right conspiracy all of a sudden became a very plausible hypothesis on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine entertained by yeah. The New Yorker and then talked about by Jon Stewart. And so it changed... <laughs> It really went from conspiracy to plausible theory in overnight, and, and we all saw that happen. What what is going on there? Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, it is quite quite telling that it took John Stewart to go on a late night comedy show to make it uh, acceptable to talk about again. Okay, so conspiracy theory is uh, well, a conspiracy is is when two or more people plot in secret to gain an unfair or immoral or illegal advantage over a third party and. So the lab leak hypothesis itself is not really a conspiracy theory because the, the most people that think there might be something to the lab, lab leak hypothesis don't think it was a bioweapon that the Chinese secretly unleashed upon the world. 
Uh, most of them think it was just an accident. So an accident would not be a conspiracy by definition. Uh, so we, we could just take that off the table, it, unless you, you want to talk about c- cover up. Now, the Chinese may be covering up what happened at the lab. That would be a conspiracy. Uh, and therefore, a conspiracy theory about it is either true or false. And we can try to get at that. The problem is that the Chinese, you can't really trust the Chinese. So you know, there <laughs> is, could be something to, the, to, to that conspiracy theory. I think uh, Matt Ridley and, and uh, Alina Chen's new book, a Viral, it, it explores this pretty well. I've been stunned by the reviews to accuse them of being conspiracy theorists, which they state right up front, we're not. We do, this is not a conspiracy theory. You know, and, and, and it's not at all clear that the zoonomic um, you know, kind of spillover hypothesis is, uh, is true. It's not, it's not like 90-10 in favor of the one over the other hypothesis. It's kind of 50-50. It could go either way, as far as I can tell. And that should be okay to discuss, but I'm astonished at the reviews of this book, mostly negative, saying, no, no, this is a, this is a clear-cut case of zoonomic spillover from bats or, or pangolins, whatever. No, it's not. <laughs> it really isn't clear if you just look at the evidence. So it should be the fact that it's not acceptable to even discuss it uh, is troubling. It's funny because so now there's a kind of a, there, there are multiple levels at play where there's the one thing is having a conspiracy theory of your, of your own and trying to forward that. And then there's just having a hypothesis about something or just an idea about something and it being smeared as a conspiracy theory in order to yes, dismiss it. Yes. So there's all that going on as well, which I, I feel like the reviews of that book are kind of in the latter camp where it's, you know, we, we just can't yes, even entertain yes. this idea for narrative purposes or tribal purposes. So, so it, I think that's part of what makes it so complicated. And then, of course, the fact that that happens just kind of reinforces the conspiracy theorists' idea of, aha, I must be onto something. Right? So there's, there's all this crazy echoing and backfiring going on. Yeah, the third element of my theory of conspiracy uh, beliefs is um, constructive conspiracism, I call it. That is to say, enough conspiracy theories in the past have turned out to be true that it pays to be constructively conspiracies. That is, just assume that there is a conspiracy just in case, because people really do plot in secret. There really are coalitions operating against each other in competition for power and resources and money and, and so forth. And, um, and so it, it's unfortunate that you know, the conspiracy theory tag has become a pejorative. Oh, that's just conspiracy theory. Are you just a conspiracy theorist, which, which equates to you're just a nutball. Uh, but no, in fact, you know, there are there are real conspiracies. And so the question of conspiracy theorizing is, well, is the theory true or not? It may be true. It may be false. Like JFK assassination conspiracy theories, I think they're false. I think, uh, I accept the lone assassin there. But Lincoln was assassinated by conspiracy. So the theory about that is true, right? Watergate was a conspiracy. Iran-Contra turned out to be true. And all the you know Afghanistan papers, Pentagon papers, WikiLeaks, all the... Um, the things we've discovered that our government was doing without congressional approval, like warrantless wiretapping, that's against the law. Well, maybe it isn't because Bush changed the law and so on. Those are kinds of conspiracy theories that have turned out to be true. So it's not unreasonable for people to suspect that there might be something up with whatever it is we're interested in talking about. Uh, That's normal. And that's actually good because enough of it does happen that we should be a little on the paranoid side. You know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. It's the is the tagline there. <laughs>
Right. Exactly. A good example of what Angel was talking about was actually happening. You can see that on, on both sides a little uh, with regard to the critical race theory debate in America. Um, and that was, you know, on the on the left, they were saying that um, the the consensus was that, oh, the right is that's that CRT is being taught in school is just a conspiracy theory. They're the ones driving right, that yeah. up. And then, you know, on the right, generally people think that the idea of systematic racism in general and, and other kinds of uh, uh, foundations of, of CRT is the, the, the conspiracy theory. That is the biggest conspiracy. So, you know, you can see how that word um, and all its implications can be used to basically dismiss yes. one or the other side. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do think it's a kind of conspiracy theory that it's not so with critical race theory, it's not that people are still as racist as they were in the 1950s. It's clear they're not. So they've shifted it to this kind of underground, unconscious, systemic, built into the system theory about racism. And so you can deny it all you want. You know, Melissa, you can say, hey, I, don't, I just don't have negative feelings about people of color. I just don't. And yeah, you say that, but unconsciously you do. And here's a little test this IAT test, this implicit association test, which has been debunked over and over now for the last couple of years. It didn't survive the replication crisis in psychology. But nevertheless, it's quoted as, as implying there's this kind of unconscious bias. And then from there, that goes even deeper down the rabbit hole of, you know, the systemic built into the system. And that makes it even harder to, to kind of ferret out, well, where's the problem exactly that needs to be solved that where people are being discriminated against? And if you can identify it, if it's something like redlining in real estate or discrimination in mortgage uh, rates to you know people of color or something like that, okay, well then that's not a no longer a conspiracy theory. That's a problem that just needs to be legislated or something like that. But uh, so, but when when you point that out or try to debate it, and they say there's no debate, this is just happening. Well, that's a kind of conspiracy theory that can't is one of the elements of conspiracy theories is that. If they're not falsifiable, if there's no way to test it, if there's no way to get at it, then what are we even talking about, right? It's just, this is just opinion. And, uh, and much of, I think, critical race theory is, is kind of in that element. And so that's one reason why I, I support the FAIR organization and your activities is because it, somebody needs to stand up and say, well, where's the evidence for this? Show us what the problem is exactly. Because, of course, we all want to work toward a more equitable and just fair society. But how do you do that if we're told you can't do anything about it? It's just systemic and built into the system. But it's like, no, that's not acceptable. Yeah, there's a kind of uh, racism of the gaps going on slowly as we as we continue to progress, like, you know, um, the moral arc and you mentioned. But there's also the thing of I remember George Carlin was on Bill Maher at one point and he was saying he was, you know, saying some of the usual stuff he says. And someone else on the panel mentioned, you know, oh, conspiracy theory and blah, blah, blah. And George's response was, you don't need a formal conspiracy when interests converge. And I think that speaks mm -hmm. to, to the idea that sometimes, you know, as you mentioned, even in that TED talk from years ago, that we're, we're pattern seeking machines. We're kind of evolutionarily programmed to see that face on Mars or to see the man on the moon. And we're kind of programmed to see, you know, our life as a, a random series of events, but then in hindsight suddenly becomes this perfectly crafted novel that was destined to make us who we are. And that's a lot of it too, seeing patterns and putting it all together into a narrative out of the chaos, you know? So um, what do you think? Well, that, per that perfectly describes the, you know, that the police are killing 
people of color because there's enough videos of this happening that the, the availability heuristic kicks in and you think, well, this is a huge problem. I see it seems like every week there's you know one of these uh, body cams or, or a private citizen filming some horrible thing. And, you know, you see these videos, it's infuriating and, and, it, and you automatically think, well, you know, three dots or four dots or six dots or whatever is a pattern. And therefore we have a pattern of a deep systemic problem in the uh, police departments across America. And before you know it, you have this huge theory about you know, defunding the police because of this, whatever. Well, you have to do a, you have to look at the, not the headlines, but the trend lines. I mean, the number of people that are killed by cops in general has been going down for decades. Cops are less racist than they used to be. I mean, it, it used to be way worse in the 1950s. And, uh, you know, this, here's another example of my proxy conspiracism is the OJ trial. I mean, OJ was acquitted based on a conspiracy theory. His attorneys floated the idea that the police planted the bloody glove and the blood splatter and, and the evidence. They, they contaminated the crime scene with planted evidence. And, and this resonated with a lot of the African-American community in Los Angeles because that did used to go on. And, uh, and I recommend this. There's this ESPN documentary series called uh, OJ in America. I think that's what it's called. And it goes back to post-World War II migration from the south of um, people of color into Southern California, particularly Los Angeles, and how the pretty much all white police responded to that. Not good. I mean, it's, it was, it's pretty bad. So by the time you get to the, you know, the OJ trial, you know, that conspiracy theory kind of resonated with the jury, even though you could tell it was clear from that particular case, OJ killed his wife. It's obvious. Everybody knows that. But for the jurors, it was like, yeah, but but this is the kind of thing the police could have done because they used to do this. So we're going to kind of, uh, you know, uh, acknowledge that you know publicly because it was such a public trial. So that that's the kind of thing that, um, again, you have to look at the details of every case. <clears throat> I mean, clearly there are some cops that should never have a badge and a gun. You know, they're, they're just badasses and, and the psychopaths or whatever, uh, they still exist. So, but to me, it's like, well, then, then get rid of that guy right there in the department. That's the guy, <laughs> not like, right. let's, let's accuse everybody of being racist and defund the police. That, that, that's not fair to the, you know, 99% of cops who are probably not racist, but, you know, just, but 1%, you know, I don't know what the police force is in the United States. It's, you know, probably tens of thousands or hundreds. Of, I don't know what it's a lot. So 1% is enough to get you, you know, at least one story a week of some horrific, you know, beating or shooting or whatever, that it fits the larger narrative that you through patternicity find that connection and think, well, there is a, a trend there. And, and there, there isn't a trend. The trend is in the right direction still. Well, one of the consequences of your work debunking conspiracies, questioning orthodoxies has been, has led you, I think, to, to uh, question religion. Mm -hmm. And there's this idea that uh, I think most uh, recently promulgated by John McWhorter that what we're seeing now in America is a quasi, or actually he just straight up calls it a, a new religion. Mm. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I know John pretty well. And I, I remember when he was floating that idea around at first, I thought, I don't know if, if you call everything a religion, then what does that word even mean? Because most religions, they have something like a Godhead involved, not Buddhism, but most religions have some sort of a deity or a supernatural element. So it can't mean that, but what he means, I think does work in terms of as a social organization and structure that reinforces certain beliefs as truths, 
as non-negotiable truths. I mean, if you think about religious truths, you know, if you're a Christian, you have to believe that Jesus was resurrected after he was crucified and ascended to heaven, and he died for your sins because of original sin and the fall of Adam and Eve and all that. I mean, these are really non-negotiable points. Uh, if you don't believe those, then why be a Catholic or Protestant or whatever? Why not just be a Jew or nothing? Um, and, and so in a way to ask, did the resurrection really happen? What's the evidence? You know, who was there? And, you know, who was at the tomb again? And, and they rolled the rock away and it was Mary and the other two women. Or no, it was just the one woman. And, 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 and somebody saw Jesus on the road afterwards, three days later. And uh, all that is really irrelevant to believers. It's, it's a non-negotiable truth. This is just what we believe. Otherwise, we wouldn't be Christians, right? So in that sense, I think uh, McWhorter's accusation that critical race theory and, and kind of the whole package of the woke ideology and social justice is a kind of religion because the specific points, like the things we were just discussing, they're really non-negotiable. There's no, there's no debate. We know cops hate people of color. That's just a given. Or we know that the government discriminates against women and people or corporate America discriminates. And so we know this. And if you say, well, let's debate that, it's like, this would be like debating the resurrection. No, it's not debatable. It's, <laughs> this is what we believe. <laughs> and if we didn't believe it, we wouldn't be social justice activists or whatever. And so that's, and so then for, if you, are, if you believe it and you're challenged, you have to just push back violently or, or aggressively. And if you were in the group and you decide, you know, I changed my mind. I think I don't believe this anymore. Then you're punished uh, for dissenting from the orthodoxy. And that's, and that's what John's book is about. And I think that's correct. I think that's a right, uh, it's a good analogy or, or metaphor, if you will. It's a kind of religion where uh, original sin is there built in. We're all inherently racist. You know, even you, even you guys, all of us, you know, it's just comes with the territory. We're born racist. And so we have to atone for our racism by accepting Jesus as our savior, but not literally in this case, it would be, you know, accepting whoever the the leaders of the, you know, I think uh, John identifies, you know, Ibram X. Kendi is kind of the 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 Messiah of the movement. It's it's an interesting uh, it's it's an interesting analogy. I think it works in that case. I can certainly, uh, I if I remember correctly, you used to be an evangelical Christian. Is that right? Yeah, so yes, I, that's you know. right. Yeah, yeah, that was long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> but I was. So I, yeah, I I do have. I do understand the the religious worldview because I believed it for about seven years. I was pretty serious about it. I went to Pepperdine University. It's a Church of Christ school. And I took courses in the, the Old Testament, and New Testament, and the life of Jesus and so forth. I read everything C.S. Lewis wrote. And I went door to door witnessing to people because that's what you're supposed to do if you're an evangelical. You're supposed to evangelize. That's what it means to be an evangelical. And in a way, there's a kind of a logic to it. I mean, if you really believe that um, there is eternal life, and if you accept Jesus as your Savior, you get to go. And then you know people that don't. It, you kind of feel like, well, it's my obligation to help these people. I mean, the, we're talking about eternity. You know, it's a long time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, and so we got to convince them that this is the, the, you know, the way, the truth, and the light. For God so loved the, uh, the world, he gave his only begotten son. You know, John 3, 16, that, you know, those posters you see at football games and stuff. You know, that that's kind of the, uh, you know, the central dogma to it. And I just stopped believing that at some point. So I just quietly gave it up and, and quit talking about it. But oh, but so when people most, tell you, most people yeah. loudly, loudly give it up. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, back, so back when I did that, it, the atheism wasn't a big thing. There was no big science religion debate. It wasn't uh, a thing to be a, an atheist. It was just nothing. And part of it was I, I had a new social group. Um, I went to a, a state university for a graduate program in psychology. And and uh, there, it, it was irrelevant. I, whether people are religious or not, I have no idea. No one ever talked about it. You know, we were just doing science. And so there I realized, you know, when you're not surrounded by everybody who believes the same thing as you, it puts a new light on, on those uh, elements of your belief. And then I took courses on comparative religion and anthropology. And I went through my Joseph Campbell mythology stage of, you know, reading his books. And, and I realized, you know, everybody believes something that, that, you know, they're convinced is their truth. And, you know, what's the chances that I'm the one that got it right. And all these other people that believe something different are wrong. And then, you know, I don't know, that doesn't sound very reasonable. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and then the problem of evil always troubled me, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, and not not human evil like genocide or homicide or whatever, because you know God gave us free will or whatever, and we're sinful. But just natural evil, you know, hurricanes, tsunamis, and childhood leukemia that you know that kills children and and, and you know just ruins people's lives. Why should that happen? That that was troubling to me, so I ultimately just gave it up. Yeah, so it's 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 funny because you know we're talking about the analogy of religion to what we're witnessing right now, and you know I certainly. Having been raised Catholic, I, I, I'm totally, I can see the same kind of gears turning mm. in people's heads. I can see the, the, the similarities in the behavior. Um, you know, a long, long time ago, before I even knew who John McWhorter was, I, I was talking to somebody and they, they said something to the effect of, you know, what they're planning to study in school and, you know, they're going to, they're going to do documentary films and it's going to be woke as fuck. Like, I remember that specific phrase. And for some reason it triggered me and I was like, oh my God, I, I know a religion when I see one and this is starting to smell like it. And this is a long time ago. This is many years ago. So it's way before the real big awakening. But, but it's interesting because I feel like you did two things that I think are critical to seeing your way out, right? And the first thing is asking all the right questions, right? You know, the problem of evil, questioning the tenets and starting to dig in a little bit. But one other thing that I think is an even bigger and more important aspect is you broke free from the echo chamber, right? You started to surround yourself with other people, with other ideas and other perspectives. And that's something that is very consciously fought against in our current culture, right? We want to silo, we want to create bubbles. So I'm, I'm curious what you think about that and what can be done. Yes, that's a huge problem that you've identified it perfectly. And Part of the problem is that there's not a centrist bubble uh, like we, what we <laughs> right. really need. You know, just liberals slightly to the left of center and, and conservatives slightly to the right of center. Where's that bubble? Mm. You know, I'm troubled by the fact that so many people who are just concerned about woke uh, racism and wokeism in general, you know, they're, they're turning to Fox News for their alternative. You know, oh, well, right. Tucker Carlson is my alternative. Oh, my God. <laughs> Fox News, Fox News is the, you know, right. the out, uh, you know, that's also troubling because, you know, they have their own issues over there. So, um, you know, I, I think that, well, one of the things that Fair is doing, we're creating a new bubble, you know, the, right. a, a rational bubble. You know, we live in our, you know, rationality, reason, science, empiricism and all that, you know, and we just want to know what's true, uh, you know, not, not, not pick sides. And so let, let's just explore this word for a minute, woke, because, you know, I feel like before it became contaminated, McWhorter has a nice discussion about how words go through what Steve Pinker calls the euphemism treadmill. 
<laughs> where they're they're just a descriptive term and people use it and then all of a sudden it becomes pejorative and then you can't use it anymore other than to denounce other people. You're just a SJW or you're a woker and uh, now it's an insult. So, but if you just want to say, well, I, we should all be aware of uh, incidences of racism or, or discrimination, misogyny and so on. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, I wrote a whole book on, you know, this, this, uh, here it is, the moral arc, 500 pages of, you know, kind of exploring uh, what's happened over the last several centuries to uh, expand our consciousness to include other people in our moral sphere to incorporate other humans that should belong in the honorary tribe of our uh, group members that we care about. Yes, that's good. Um, and, and and so to give people, I guess, on the other side who are social justice activists, some uh, understanding, you know, when you see these police videos, like the George Floyd video, let's say, it is infuriating to watch. Yeah. And it's like, I want to do something about this. Now, most of us can't do anything about it. I mean, I'm, I'm not a mayor. I'm not the chief of police at this department. You know, I'm not a politician, congressman or senator. What am I going to do? I, what, you know, I'm just outraged. I'm going to go down there and I'm going to march. I heard this is March tomorrow. You know, nine o'clock, I'm going down with my poster and I'm going to hold it up. So I kind of get why people do that. They feel like, well, I want to do something. And I can't do anything, you know, technically. So I'm going to just protest. That's what I'm going to do. So I kind of get even the Antifa, which I completely denounce their activities, but I get the motivation. Like, you know, something is wrong here and we want to do something about it. Okay. Well, what should we do about it? You know, that's the question. That's the harder question. And just, you know, shout, you know, breaking those windows at Starbucks is not going to, it's not going to do it. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, I, I actually challenge people to do this sometimes because it seems like, you know, the, the revolutionary fervor of our time seems to have kind of really escalated in, since George Floyd happened. Um, but if you go back to, I think this happened in June of last year, um, if you look at clips of Sean Hannity on Fox News, he was upset. Right after, you know, that night, the coverage, even on Fox News, was that of, we need to do something about it. This was unacceptable, what just happened. Mm. And I remember maybe like a 12 hour period of what looked like everybody. I mean, if Fox News is agreeing on something, everybody was in agreement that right. police reform right. needed to happen. And all of a sudden, everything kind of, you know, that, that Cambrian woke explosion, at least in the popular <laughs> culture. I think before that, before that, many, many of us, probably two online people had this inkling that things were changing. But it wasn't until post-George Floyd that normies, like, say, my sister, who was never political, came to mm. me and started asking questions. Why is our company, you know, forcing us to post black squares on our Instagram or things like that? Um, and so mm. it, it, that's the moment it actually hit the, the public consciousness, I think, in a way that more populist. And, and, and you started then seeing, you know, things like uh, K-12 education started harping on, on critical race theory, derived ideas. Um, and, and we had to, to elevate racism or like talk about racism in general um, in, in almost every facet of life. Yeah, that's right. Well, um, I like that Cambrian woke explosion. That's a nice analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I may use that. <laughs> well, so again, I think, you know, corporations see this. It's like, well, we should do something. Even if they don't, if we if we think of it more cynically, that they're just doing it for their bottom line to socially signal that they care, you know. But the question is, is you know, when you put resources into doing something, like 
forcing all employees to take these training programs. I, I, I have to do this at Chapman University. All of us have to take these um, racial sensitivity and sex, uh, gender racial sensitivity programs online. You can't even hack them anymore. You can't just sort of grind through while you're doing something else. <laughs> Or because they have a little clock on them and they, they, you have to click certain buttons. They, they, they kind of force you to really read the scenarios and then click the correct answer, which is always call HR. <laughs> I figured out. <laughs> you know, so you, know, you see a colleague telling an off-color joke. What should you do? Uh, repeat the joke. Tell your friends about it. Forward it on Facebook or call HR. <laughs> oh, let's see. What would be the right answer here? <laughs> we're, we're becoming a nation of hall monitors. That's what's happening. It's terrible. No, and the scenarios are, you know, they try to make them diverse and, and, and equitable. So, you know, here, so a female professor is uh, hitting on the male students like, oh, yeah, I remember that happening. <laughs> Not. <laughs> you know, so, or, you know, a, uh, you know, gay, bi, trans person of color is, you know, doing something. It's like, okay, come on. <laughs> what, you know, what are we really doing here? So, but, you know, but what, two reasons to do that, virtue signaling, like, you know, we're on board with this, we back it. But also legally, I think uh, corporations and universities are doing this for their employees so that if something does happen, they can say, look, we put that guy through the training program. Here it is. He, he took it on October 12th at three o'clock. He completed it by six o'clock. So we're covered, you know, and, and it protects them legally because there's a lot of lawsuits now. So. There is that that aspect of it. So, but again, the question, the real question is, does it work? And the answer is apparently not. It doesn't change people's hearts, and whose whose hearts are already mostly changed anyway. Again, compared to 1950s, conservatives today are far more socially liberal than, than liberals were in the 1950s. I mean, everybody's had their consciousness raised. I mean, even gay marriage, which didn't change until 2015 in the Supreme Court decision, that's almost. A non-conversation now. Even conservatives hardly even discuss it anymore. It's like, well, whatever, dude. Who cares? Uh, you know, God loves everybody. You know, Jesus loves gays and straight. Okay, fine. <laughs> that happened pretty quick. You know, 2011, pre-2011, both Obama and Hillary publicly stated they were against same-sex marriage. Now, maybe they secretly believed it, but didn't know what to say or had to say what their constituents believe. You never know about politicians, but that happened pretty quick. So again, you know, these, this kind of training programs and, and this assumption of systemic racism, I just don't think it's true. And, and therefore, putting people through programs isn't going to do anything. And the people who are still racist assholes or, or misogynist assholes, they're not going to change because they took some training program. They're just, that's who they are, right? They're, something else will have to change for them. Usually it's something like when they know somebody who is... Uh, is, is black or, 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 or Jewish or gay or whatever. And then they realize, oh, well, this is somebody I like. And so maybe I should change my attitudes. And they usually do that quietly in the privacy of their own thoughts, uh, you know, not publicly when they're tra- taking some training program. But one of the, one of the, cons- I wouldn't say it's a conspiracy, but I guess orthodoxies that exist today that seems to be unassailable is the idea that any difference that we see has got to be uh, attributed to systematic racism and, and almost no other cause is considered. It's, you know, if, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? It's something it, that seems to be something that's going on right now. Um, so how do we, you know, try to use reason to, to argue against something like that? Because, I mean, this seems to be prevailing almost in every, everywhere you look, whether it's 
discussions about uh, students, you know, student demographics in K to 12, especially when it comes to very prestigious schools. Um, you start to see it uh, also in, say, you know, um, representation all across the board, females in science or things like that. Um, how do you how do we use reason to push back on this or if it's possible? Yes. Uh, we have to know what the base rate is. What's the comparison? Sometimes I call this the, the Jack Benny effect. Jack Benny was a comedian in the 1950s who famously said when somebody asked him, how's your wife? He said, compared to what? <laughs> 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 you know, and uh, uh you know if you tell me oh there was you know three police shootings this week isn't that bad it's like i don't know how, compared to what how many was there last week or last month or, or there's only 10 percent female google programmers you know, programmers of google and, you know isn't that terrible i don't know I, you know what compared to what how many are applying you know oh 10 percent of applicants are female and they have 10 percent of female programmers i'm just making those numbers up but that would be you need a base rate to compare it to, and uh, and most of these uh, group differences you find are of that nature, that there's some other reason uh, besides obviously misogyny or racism or bigotry in general that's probably the cause you know just uh, just vocational interest of what people gravitate to for careers that they want to pursue, or maybe there's a pipeline difference you know so. At least in, in the worlds of science that I travel in, you know, pretty much every academic and scientist I know, every department I've dealt with, they're they are going out of their way to hire women and people of color and so on. They're, you know, they'll do anything to try. They they want to, not not because of affirmative action or what they want to do that. They want to do the right thing and make it more fair. There just isn't as many applicants. So then you have to shift the discussion away from, well, these people are all racist or they're all misogynist, because uh, that doesn't appear to be the case across the board. Again, you can always find some old guy that's just a jerk, and he didn't get the memo. You know, that, you, know you, can, you, you can highlight them, but they're, they're mostly re- retiring now. Uh, but So then you have to look at the pipeline. Well, how, why are there not more female applicants in computer programming or physics or engineering? Well, first of all, why are we focused on that end of the spectrum? Why not ask, for example, I posted this, uh, graph in my Substack column that I think it was like uh, public administration PhDs. It's like 70, 30 uh, female. How come no one said, hey, how come there aren't 50% men as, as public administration PhDs? No, nobody thinks twice about it. And medicine, uh, public health, biology, all of the social sciences and humanities, there's way more uh, women PhDs than men. And now that, you know, after couple of decades, the, that pipeline starts to fill up as they apply to get jobs. They become tenured professors. They hire more people. And then you see it more equitable, what we are, are thinking about equ- equitability. But again, we're focused on just the STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, as why are there not more female representatives there? Well, well why aren't we flipping that and saying, well, but there are in these other areas. Could it be that women are more interested in these fields and men are more interested in these fields over here. And that appears to be the case, and there should be nothing wrong with that. I mean, you shouldn't force people to do some, pursue some career they don't want to do. And that should be, you know, that should be okay. But in today's conversation, it's not. And so again, the, uh, you could find differences between any groups of people on almost anything. You know, Thomas Sowell always made this point. I mean, you could take like Yankees fans and Boston Red Sox fans and go, oh, there's an income difference. Ah, uh, there's something discriminate. No, you, just groups differ on everything. 
you know, and, and it would be weird. Soul always pointed this out. It would be weird if you found like two completely different groups, gender, race, whatever, that, that were exactly the same on all on everything. That, that was virtually impossible. And so this overemphasis on on group differences is itself kind of a, a form of racism or bigotry. You're stereotyping. You're saying we're going to judge these individuals by the group that they're in. Okay, that's the wrong direction to go in. And this is my biggest concern about critical race theory is we're you know, so focused on race. You know, the whole point was, uh, you know, from the civil rights movement was quit talking about race. You know, that's it's a rel- it's the least interesting thing I should know about you. But with the current climate, it's now elevated to the most interesting thing I'm supposed to know about you. And to me, that's the wrong direction. And there are so many misfires that happen as a result. I mean, assuming things, my whole life, people assuming things based on my group, my group identity, whatever group they decide to put me in, they're going to get it wrong, right? I don't like rap music. I like, I like Led Zeppelin, you know? I got that wrong, what? by the way. Really? I'm the <laughs> one that got that wrong, Hugh. He's talking about me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Even Melissa got it wrong. So, <laughs> well, that's a but, generational thing. You know, yeah, I'm right. amazed you like, so you like classic rock. Yeah, I'm a, I'm I'm all about 70s rock and all that stuff. I mean, oh I loved God. that in in middle and high school. I I was the weird kid listening to Queen when everyone else was listening oh to, God. you know, the music of the day. Oh and it God. was totally right. And I actually right. I even I I went to school in that exact window where playing guitar was not cool. Like e- immediately before oh, me wow. and immediately after it became cool and it was cool, but it was just not cool. Like I got nothing. I got nothing. You know, the whole thing about like learn to play guitar to pick up chicks, nothing. Uh, yeah. So I, I've always been an, an oddball in that sense, in, in all those things, any expectation of me based on, on these kind of, you know, h- higher, more kind of broad and generalized group characteristics, you're going to get me wrong. And so many people get erased in that way. So there's that. And there's also the thing of, you know, which I'm sure you're aware of any group at all. You mentioned it a little bit, but even if the group is totally made up, like right now in this moment, you know, one thing that I talk about a lot is, is if we split the world up by what they're wearing right now, like if every, if, you know, whoever's wearing a button down t-shirts, tank tops, you know, no shirt or a dress or whatever, we have those six or seven groups. And then we administer IQ tests. We, we find out what their income is. We'll find disparities and it'll make the groups seem legitimate. You know, it'll give the right. illusion that the groups are somehow, somehow it makes sense to group people that way. Um, but, you know, one thing that, that I think complicates this, and you touched on it a little bit, but especially with the, like, the systemic racism thing, right, is that we define terms differently. We're all walking around with our mm. own definition of things. So depending mm. on what we mean by systemic racism, there could be some merit to it, right? Like uh, redlining would be an example of what I would call a systematic you know, racism mm-hmm. that, you know, even if the, or, you know, the, the mortgage thing, you know, even if a one particular agent is not racist themselves, they're operating in a system that is designed that way. Right. So I'm curious what you think about how difficult it is for us to communicate because we're all walking around with different definitions. Yes. Well, and then Melissa touched on that earlier about rationality. One thing is what the political scientist Philip Tetlock called base rate taboos. Uh, so we mentioned, I got to know the base rate. Well, there's certain base rates that are taboo to even talk about. Uh, you know, so if you go, if you want to go down the systemic path and look at, let's say, um, rates of broken families and children raised by single moms in the African-American community versus the other community, Asian community or white community, 
you know, there's huge differences there. And so, but it takes somebody like a, 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 a Thomas Sowell or a Shelby Steele to point this out and a little bit John McWhorter, but not quite as much. And, and his colleague, Glenn Lowry, yeah, he really brings this up too, but they're called like uncle Tom's or self-hating blacks for, for bringing up these topics or just, Oh, he's a black conservative. So he's conservative black. So therefore we, we can dismiss his arguments, you know, but, but, but what they're doing is, is they're, they're, they're tagging what Tetlock called this taboo base rate. Uh, that is, well, maybe pipeline is the way it is going way back because marriage rates have changed so much in the African-American community. Thomas Sowell makes this point. He has data you know, showing that uh, African-Americans had the, pretty much the same marriage rates and raising children in a two-parent two home as whites and Asians all, all the way up to the 1960s. And then that changed. And so the question is, could that be a causal explanation for things down the decades later that, that, that leads to these differences? The answer, I think, appears to be yes. I mean, you know, it's just in terms of income differences. Uh, you know, a single mom just cannot, uh, you know, have the same quality of life as a two-parent home because of just the, just the amount of expenses that there are and how much money you can make as an individual versus pooling uh, resources together and division of labor in the home. Uh, you know, it makes a huge difference. Could that then decades later cause some of these differences? Well, okay, so you can debate this, and I think there might be something to it, but maybe there's some legitimate criticisms. But the larger point is that that's not considered a topic that we can even discuss. You know, that, you know, because uh, Sol cites that study by uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan in 1963, uh, in which he identified that 23, I think it was 23 or 25% of uh, black children are raised in single uh, homes, uh, homes with just a, a single mom, no dads. And uh, and he was concerned about that. He was a sociologist and later a politician. He's like, this could be catastrophic for African-American families going forward. It's now 75 percent. You know, it's triple what it was in 1963. So Thomas Sowell points this out and going, hey, th th we should look at look at this. And and almost nobody will even talk about that. So this this taboo base rate taboo, this comparison of numbers and, and looking at deeper causes. If you want to look at systemic causes, that that could be one, you know, family differences, along with the others, government policies from the 30s and 40s and 50s that are maybe still underlying some of these issues could be. So we should change those if they are. But let's look at all of them and not just pick the ones that we want. But it seems to me what's taboo is what could be considered to have moral implications. So so mm. the the kinds of um, assumptions that are baked into it, that if this turns out to be true, you know, this, this, some sort this may imply some sort of moral hierarchy and therefore it's just better. I think, I think a lot of these, you know, what we see in terms of say progressive denial of science, for example, right now on gender ideology, um, is that just acknowledging sort of genetic or inherent differences, innate differences in and of itself implies that that you know there's there's superiority and inferiority baked into that so so for that reason we have to all kind of walk on eggshells and just pretend that there are no differences whatsoever and i i don't know how that that follows i i think we're, you know i think this this there's a strain of thought where where it, it is just so risky to even acknowledge mm -hmm. that so acknowledging that 
you know, family structure might have something to do, might be implicating something more, might have moral implications. I think, I think that's what's happening uh, in terms of why people are just shutting down the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that when we're talking about these differences, say, go back to the example of, of, of fewer women in STEM, no one's arguing that women are not capable of doing it. Uh, they're quite capable of doing it. It, it, it. We know that there's overlapping bell curves here, like on IQs, and that on average, men and women are the same in intelligence. The distribution is slightly different. The bell curve for men is slightly wider than it is for women. So you get more super, super, you know, six standard deviations out from the right geniuses of men than women. And, but on the other side of the bell curve, more dunces, <laughs> more lower IQ uh, men than, than women. So it's just that statistical distribution differences that could have an effect on, again, the pipeline that leads to these STEM jobs, because almost nobody can do like theoretical physics at Caltech and MIT. I mean, it's like 0.00001% of the world's population would be qualified to do this. And so who's the pool that you're, you're selecting from? Well, there's not going to be very many, right? And there's going to be slightly more men than women in that pool just on that kind of statistical distribution. Okay, that's one argument. This is the argument that Larry Summers made and that got him fired at Harvard. <laughs> for He was essentially echoing that argument. And But the counter to that is that it may not be that at all. It may just be interest differences, vocational interest differences. So we know that, for example, that girls are more interested in playing with people toys and boys are more interested in playing with things toys, mechanical toys, something like that. So here's the evolutionary psych explanation for these uh, then uh, differences down the pipeline is that girls, as they get older, gravitate toward careers and professions that are more people oriented, medicine, health, public administration, biology, sociology, psychology, anthropology, uh, you know, psychiatry and so on. And men gravitate more toward things. So computers and engineering and, and, you know, STEM type fields. Okay. So that's, so again, it has nothing to do with talent or who can do what or ability. It just has to do what you're interested in spending 40 to 50 to 60 hours a week for the rest of your life doing. You, you really better like it. <laughs> and if you don't like it, then, you know, then don't do it. It doesn't make for a good quality life. Regardless of what the activists say you should be doing, you should do what you want to do. And again, overlapping bell curves, plenty of women can run the uh, Fortune 500 companies. They can run countries like Angela Merkel did for you know 19 or 16 years, 19 years, whatever it was. It, they're quite capable of doing it. It's just that that there's a vocational interest differences, and we know from studies showing that when you give uh, middle school kids, so this would be seventh and eighth grade vocational interest tests, and you see how it breaks down what they're interested in, and then you see what they actually end up doing like 20, 10, 20 years later. It's the same. So they're just pursuing paths in life that resonate more with them. And there should be nothing wrong with that. And we should be able to discuss that. Right. You can say all that, but someone is still what, like the Kathy Newmans of the world are still going to say, you know, so what you're really saying is right? it doesn't really matter. <laughs> well, and just to, yes. just to, uh, just to bullet, bulletproof you a little bit there, Michael, I'm sure that all of what you're, what you just said doesn't discount the fact that there would be, you know, maybe a climate of, of, of a kind of boys club in certain professions, certain pursuits that would make it, you know, give yes. a chilling effect to women joining. I'm sure you acknowledge I, all of I, this. I, I'm sure that I'm sure that's true. I know yeah. that's true. It's 
But again, it's compared to what? It's not as bad as it used to be. You know, the old boys club, you know, used to be pretty tight and and extensive in the say 1950s, 60s. It's not the same now. It's still there in some professions, I'm sure. You know, but again, we so we can have two thoughts at the same time. One, things are better than they've ever been, and things still need a lot of work and improvement. Okay, those yeah. could both be true at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it seems like so much of our problem is is being unable to hold those two thoughts for any given topic. Um, right. Which actually brings me to, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about skepticism. Obviously that's such a, you know, that's such a huge part of all the work you've done and continue to do. Yeah. Here's our, our new issue just came out of skeptic magazine, right? On the Havana syndrome. It does not appear that there are acoustic weapons. It appears to be a mass psychogenic illness. <laughs> Yeah, another one. It's just like fascinating. Yeah, another one. Like we we want every like every to be real. I know. I know. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> um, but you know, I think, and you've mentioned this before. I think even in in a video that you did for Fair, where self skepticism is the most important kind, right? We need to oh, yes. kind of always be aware that we are susceptible to you know in group bias and group think and just kind of confirmation bias, all that stuff. Um, but it's also just so happens to be the most difficult kind of skepticism to practice, right? It's so hard to to see yourself. And that's kind of why, you know, the scientific process is kind of offloading that responsibility to other people. But not everyone, not everyone yeah, has yeah. that luxury, right? And kind of just, just as a, you know, for individuals, how would you recommend, you know, what are some, some kind of tips or tricks you might have for keeping that self-skepticism mm. machine on at any mm. given time? Well, first of all, you have to have a subscription to Skeptic Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> I totally operators, love that. Operators are, operators are standing by. <laughs> uh, there, there actually is, um, you know, a skeptical community, a rationality community. You know, there's a lot of pro-science groups. Uh, and I teach a course at Chapman University called Skepticism 101, How to Think Like a Scientist. And, uh, and during COVID, I recorded uh, all my lectures. There, you go to skeptic.com and just click on the skepticism 101. You can watch all my lectures. Uh, I see you have above your right shoulder, you have Carl Sagan's book. I recognize the spine there, Demon Haunted World. Uh, you know, that's one of, the, one of the books I use in my class. You know, so there's quite a few books along those lines. Um, you know, my book, Steve Pinker has a new book on rationality. It's excellent. You know, how to think critically is what we call it, critical thinking, but rationally using reason, using science and so on. To try to get at the truth, starting with the fundamental premise that, you know, I'm not God and you're not either, or the secular version. There is objective truth and I don't know what it is and you don't either. So we're going to have to work together at this by applying the best tools of reason and science that we have. And, and there are a lot of them and they're out there. I mean, the these videos and books and articles, magazines, you know, it's, we've really got a handle on this now. Like something new comes down the pike, some new claim, again, QAnon or whatever the next conspiracy theory will be uh, that I can't anticipate. Well, how should we think about that? You know, some, some conspiracy theories might be true. So how can I tell the difference? Well, here's some arguments you can use. Here's some questions you can ask and, and ways to analyze evidence and so on. And I've been encouraged by the, the rise of fact-checking sites like PolitiFact and Snopes, which has been around for a while. We do some of this. There's other, there's half a dozen of these political fact-checking sites now that that fact check politician speeches in real time. Uh, and, and that's, I think, is, is useful. And a lot of people want to know that. And, uh, you know, so that, that, that kind of thing is encouraging, despite the, the discouraging things, you know, that, 
uh, the kind of post-truth alternative facts, fake news, <laughs> stuff we hear a lot about, uh, we can push back against that. And FAIR is doing a lot of that heavy lifting now in, in, this, in this very sensitive area of, you know, woke-ism uh, and, and, and uh, gender and race and all that. It's, it's, uh, we, again, we have to be able to talk about it. And that's the only way forward. If you can't, then you may go down, you know, some sidetrack and you've, you know, you've gone off the rails. You don't even know it because you're not willing to talk to anybody about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So much of it, I think, is, you know, what we we kind of highlighted earlier about you suddenly being amongst a different group of people who didn't necessarily agree with you or care about the things you cared about. That exposure is important. And I think part of what we're doing kind of consciously is not allowing ourselves to be exposed to those people. We're, we're doing the cult thing of, of siloing ourselves off. So, you know, what, what are some, some ways that we can actively avoid those things for ourselves? Yes. Well, read op-eds by people you don't like <laughs> that are in the other <laughs> newspaper. <laughs> yeah. I subscribe to, uh, well, let's see, I got, uh, what have I got here? I have the, I have the New York times and I have the wall street journal, right? <laughs> so I read them both. I add them up and divide by two to get the truth. <laughs> you know, one notori- <laughs> yeah. One is notoriously on the right. The other is notoriously on the left. Okay. So, you know, that's one thing you could do is just try to read uh, what other people are writing that people that you, you know, disagree with you and uh, you know, try to talk to people that, uh, you know, are actually on the other side. It's, it's hard to steal man, somebody's argument. If they're not there to correct you, if you're not doing it correctly, like, I think this is what you believe, Melissa. And you go, no, that isn't what I believe. You've, you've misunderstood me. Oh, let me try again. And then we go back and forth till we get, uh, get it right at what each of us believes. Well, if you're not talking to anybody, you just think you're steel manning. You're probably not. You're probably just characterizing them in a way that's not fair. So, and the only way to find out is to talk to those people. <laughs> and uh, so we have to do more of that. So in light of, um, you know, all your work, in um, in terms of um, sort of in the skeptic, atheist, secular humanist world, do you still think that a world without religion is better in terms of human flourishing mm. and well-being? Um, and I'm asking because, you know, if McWhorter's thesis is right, that this is just a new religion, is this better than the old religions? Is this, you know, potentially more destructive to, to the foundation of civilization? <laughs> That's a great question. I actually, I would say it's possibly more dangerous because we do have a secular government, supposedly, and they are a secular movement. So they could do more damage than mainstream religions, which we've mostly kept in check from, uh, from, doing anything too destructive. Uh, the West has become, you know, much uh, Western religions, I should say, have become very enlightened. They went through the enlightenment. So they, they got rid of the, you know, the pogroms and witch burnings and, and, you know, the killing people that don't agree with us. Uh, you know, most Christians, Jews and Muslims today in the West are, you know, just, they, they think like you and I do, uh, on almost everything, you know, and, and they, they kind of silo their religious beliefs, uh, in a, in a more private realm which is where it should be. That's good. Uh, now, of course, not, not that, that is true across the board, but, you know, so Islamic terrorists who believe that, that, that you know, they're going to heaven if they commit uh, jihad in, in, in a terrorist act. Well, okay, that's a problem. But what McWhorter's identified there is, is far more pervasive than these 
easily identifiable, say, acts of terrorists, or if we want to be fair, say, the Christians that blow up abortion clinics or something like this, although that doesn't happen much anymore, you know, something like that. But this is far more pervasive, and therefore the work of FAIR, I think, in, in, in ferreting that out and identifying where the problems are is, is more important than, let's say, what I'm doing with religion, because we've kind of won that battle. Right. I mean, religion as an explanatory model for the how the world works is is no longer no one takes that seriously. And we have science for that. So what's left for religions to do? Well, the social aspects, you know, they bring people together. Uh, they man the soup kitchens. They help the poor. You know, there's still a role for religion in that respect. And most people that are religious, you know, they don't care about arguments for the resurrection of Jesus or the first cause or the fine tuning of the universe, therefore God exists. They don't care about any of that stuff. They go because their family members go and their friends go and, and uh, you know, they, and there's, and there's good music and there's a little moral homily at the end of the preacher's uh, inspiring speech. And then afterwards they hang out and socialize and they get, uh, you know, free parking. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's, a whole, <laughs> there's a whole social aspect of religion that, you know, obviously science isn't going to do that. Uh, so, so it's, but it's too much to say that there's a human need for religion because the word is too big, but there's a human need for social sociality and, and, you know, social, social capital is it sometimes called, uh, just being with other people. And there's, you know, quite a few humanist type groups, atheist groups, skeptics groups or whatever that hang out or just rationality communities, just people that are like-minded, uh, and sports does that, you know, bowling leagues is the, is the model for that, but just whatever it takes. And I think the world would be better in the long run if we didn't have the religious dogma behind our moral values so that we can reason our way to uh, figuring out what's best for human flourishing. And uh, like the abortion issue, since it's back on the table, you know, I've been writing uh, in my Substack column about uh, defending pro-choice, but it, while acknowledging that pro-life arg arguments are, they have some good, good arguments. But most of them are still making religious arguments. I just passed a Planned Parenthood yesterday on my bike ride, and, and there they were out there, pray to end abortion. You know, God says, you know, and the, the religious signs. It's like, that's not an argument, <laughs> you know, because there may not even be a God. But if there is, you know, where does it say in the Bible, you know, what you're claiming about abortion? It doesn't say that, you know, so, so for pro-lifers, I would encourage them to have better secular arguments you know, grounded in, in evidence. And, and some of them do, uh, but, but there, you know, it would be good to keep religion out of those kind of public discussions because we have to reason our way together towards some kind of, the problem is we have conflicting rights there between the rights of the mother and the rights of the fetus, right? So we got to choose the, the rights of trans athletes to compete in male to female trans athletes to compete in women's sports versus the rights of women to compete against other biological women. So they're, it's fair, right? So it's we have to make a political, legal, moral decision here. And if you're bringing in religion, or in this case, woke religion, that's not helpful. Well, there's also the issue of, uh, in, in this case, especially in the abortion case, what's interesting is that uh, the science has actually made the case um, kind of a little bit more fluid um, in favor of the pro-life, the pro-lifers, because now we can sustain human life in, in a, you know, babies can, can be born a lot more prematurely than previously they could and, and still survive and be sustained. So it's interesting that, you know, 
medicine and, and, and the progress of science has actually uh, kind of made that a little a little bit more fluid, I think. Yeah, that's right. And it, it largely has supported the trimester system set up in the Roe v. Wade case, uh, in which it's pretty clear it's not a human life in the sort of sentient conscious sense. It's not a person legally in the first trimester. Uh, if we're going to give the nod to one or the other for rights, uh, clearly the adult woman is a person with legal rights and so on. And you know, in the second trimester, it gets a little fuzzier after, say, week 24, where it looks like a lot of the uh, cortex is coming online. And, and so you could make an argument that after week 24 to 28 or so, then probably abortion should not happen unless there's a medical emergency. You know, so that trimester system works pretty well, I think, and the science seems to support that. But again, I think if, if we, if we um, reconfigure the whole discussion and get abortion, the word, out of the equation, then people quit moralizing about it. What's the problem? The problem is not abortion. The problem is unwanted pregnancies. Okay, why are people getting pregnant when they don't want to get pregnant? Okay, now we can talk about uh, educational problem, economic problem, a social problem, uh, that, and, and just leave the moralizing out of it, because that's not helpful. Everybody has moral values, and they all want to moralize. That's part of our human impulse, but that's not helpful, <laughs> you know, yep. just denouncing other people. Yeah, pro, pro-lifers right. should be the most pro-birth control if that's the case, right? But that's totally what we see. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've written uh, about these, you know, abstinence programs. You know, the joke is, you know, you have to call people that use abstinence parents, right? Because <laughs> it's easy to t- it's easy to take an abstinence pledge, you know, when you're far removed from the passions of the moment, and but then then you're in the moment and, and you're unprepared. And guess what happens? Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. Access to birth control, education about, you know, how it all works, and also some awareness of human nature. Like, you know, you can say now, I'm not tempted to buy this. I'm not just not going to have sex. Yeah, but in the heat of the moment, it's going to be much harder to say that, right? It's, it's like a, the marshmallow test. You know, if the marshmallow is right there in front of me, I want the marshmallow now. I'm not going to wait for the two marshmallows later, right? So, you know, all of life is kind of a marshmallow test, you know? And there's certain issues like food and sex that are really hard to project your future self far and weigh the consequences of that decision. Really hard to do, especially if you're a teenager or in your early 20s, you know, when those passions run really strong. So preparation. Your own body's fighting against you there. (laughs) And also economic empowerment of women, you know, women that have education and economic uh, autonomy and independence are are they practice safer sex, you know, they're less likely to get pregnant and, and so on and so forth. That's the problem. So let's address that together. Pro-lifers should be in favor of everything I just said. But again, religion corrupts them in that regard. Because, oh, so last Sunday's New York Times Magazine had this cover story, this like 6,000 word essay by this woman about who didn't have an abortion. So she had her kid and the kid's now 20 or whatever. Of course, she loves her son. And but but the opening paragraphs are like, I went to this religious school and they told us we can't use birth control because if you even acknowledge having birth control, it means you've given in to sin. And so then then she tells the story. So me and my boyfriend and his friend and I liked his friend more than the boyfriend and then yada, yada, yada. We had sex. (laughs) And guess what happened? (laughs) You know, know, (laughs) 20 years later, her son's 20 years old. Okay, 
gee, that's a shocker, <laughs> you know. And uh, that's the problem where religion corrupts it there. Okay, but, you know, Peter Bogosian has actually, he actually pointed this out in terms of, you know, this new religion versus old religions. You know, why, one of the reasons why he thinks it's actually worse is, is because this new religion uh, of, of wokeism it, it has no redemption path. There's no way to just accept Jesus Christ as your, you know, your, your, your savior and, and be forgiven. Um, y- your original sin is always with you. And, and that is... That is worse. Yes, I agree with that. That's right. Yeah. Let's see. What would be the pathway? I guess you'd have to, if you're on the woke side, I mean, if whichever side you're on, you'd have to atone. But even there, you know, when you apologize, we see people that apologize for, you know, making the, using the wrong pronouns or whatever, and they're not forgiven. They're just denounced even more. Uh, So yeah, I think Pete's right in that regard. There's no pathway out of being an original sinner. Yeah, there's no pathway out, but you know, just from remembering going to church, there was not really a pathway out of that either. You have to just kind of grovel until you die, and then hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, the right. groveling will have gotten to a point where you get you know you make it through the gates. But uh, <laughs> like the Catholic guilt, right? Did you have would you yeah. when you were growing up Catholic? Did you have a lot of that guilt? Yeah, tons, stuff? tons, tons of the panopticon all the time and you know that sort of stuff but yeah there's a kind of there's a redemption after the fact right like after the finish line there's the redemption but in the meantime it's all groveling it's it's all you know you're you're just one step away from completely obliterating any good you've done you know and there's this constant re-upping that needs to be done so it's analogous in that way i don't think that there's any ultimate redemption in any of it really and you know i guess there's just more militant forms where you know, people are particularly mean to each other, but <laughs> mm, yeah. I think that's where Protestants yeah. differ from the Catholics though. Right. Right. Yeah. I, there's a lot less guilt. Uh, yes. Methodist also. Yeah. My mom was very, oh, Methodist. yeah. Oh, right. But, but right. It, it was, it was there, there was a lot less guilt, I think, than, than the mm. kids who grew up Catholic, especially, you know, mm. very strong. It, 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 and you're not Methodist anymore. No. No, definitely not. <laughs> no. How did how did you get out of or what what led you away from religion? It was by Either. the time I turned the last page of the Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins, <laughs> I knew like I because you know for me it was it was um, it was always the origin of life. Once there was a very satisfying sort of most parsimonious explanation, um, that was a house of cards. The 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 base just fell. Um, once I understood intellectually that, you know, just um, how life could have evolved on earth without, without the need for um, sort of a high intelligence. But that, that was my, um, that was my, yeah. My yeah. It was actually very discreet. It wasn't continuing. Some people take a long time to get there. Right. Mine was very right. sudden. It was just that book. And then I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So you don't miss any of the social as- aspects of your religion? Like your family is still religious or anything like that? or No, but, you know, I think one of the benefits of the internet is that people who feel alone can connect mm. with and organize with other people who share their, their own interests. Also, it, that right. very same thing is also one of the worst aspects of the internet, that people who feel alone yes. can connect with other people who share their interests. So it, it's, you know, it's a double-edged sword. I think it's how you use it, but for the most part, no. And, and it's because also if your family and friends who are religious are not, they don't cut you off, you know, as long as they, they're like, okay, you can believe what you want or not. 
but we're still going to be your family and friends. And I think that's very important to, to being a healthy, you know, like uh, to leave that tribe and still sustain healthy relationships everywhere else. I think some of the most bitter people and some of why it's actually bringing it back to wokeness, why it's so hard to leave um, is this, is this fear of being ostracized. And so you see parents not willing to speak up when their kids are being resegregated in schools into racial affinity groups, because they still want to be, you know, with, uh, in the good graces of the other parents who are their friends, who are their neighbors, and they're afraid of being, of losing that, that social support structure. So the mechanisms yeah. of holding people back from leaving religion are actually very similar to what we're seeing in terms of people being afraid to speak up about what they view are, are actually injustices and very harmful for, for their children. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think yeah. so much of it is is making sure that there are alternatives, viable alternatives to this the things that they're really worried about losing, right? That sense of community right. and camaraderie, you know, the the that fear of my whole family or my whole friend group is not going to talk to me ever again because I've changed my mind. That's the kind right. of thing I think we need to uh, we need to find viable alternatives for, um, and that actually leads us to. The last question that we ask all our guests, Michael, uh, we appreciate so much your time and all your insight. Um, but, you know, we here at FAIR, our focus is providing a kind of pro-human alternative to the issues that we've been discussing this whole time. So um, I want to hear, you know, what does being pro-human mean to you? And how do you think everyday people can take a pro-human approach to addressing these issues like all the stuff we've discussed today? Yeah, good question. I think yes to start with um, what's called methodological individualism in, in the moral realm. That is, we treat people as individuals rather than members of a group, uh, because the moment you do that, then you've stopped thinking about that person right there. You just put him in this group, and then you have certain stereotypes about the group. Okay, that's the so that's how that's how we normally think. That's that's kind of our normal impulse that we've been fighting against for half a century. So again, the concern about the woke movement, it's going in the anti-racism movement, it's the opposite direction. It's back to the battle days. So it has to begin with that, treating people as individuals. But also then if there's going to be a, a collective or a group, how about just humanity, right? Just humans, period, full stop, the whole thing, all of us together on this. You know, we're a species, you know, we're all from Africa. You know, Dawkins had that T-shirt that I probably shouldn't wear now. I still have it in my closet. I'm afraid <laughs> to put it on. It says, we're all from Africa. We're all Africans. And I don't want to put it on and go, oh, white guy thinks he's from Africa. Oh, yeah. Culturally. That, that did happen to, that exactly happened to Richard Dawkins, by the way, on Twitter. That's why I'm laughing. It did? It, yep, it did. And oh I, God, I have a screenshot oh. of the thread. Yep. He was exactly oh what you just God. anticipated did happen. Oh, my God. Well, if he gets reamed for that, then I'm not I'm definitely not putting that shirt on. <laughs> I would have no chance. <laughs> So that, you know, I think, again, this kind of, um, you know, bending the moral arc, expanding the moral sphere, P Peter Singer's moral circle, whatever metaphor you want to use, you know, just that all people are members of the human group and therefore, you know, a kind of a, a universal human nature, a universal human morality connected to human flourishing. What, you know, kind of a utilitarian argument that is whatever it takes to um, increase the number of people and places and times that are flourishing rather than suffering. It's pretty simple. So things that we can do like increasing uh, uh, wealth and decreasing poverty, that's, you know, super important. 
you know, public health measures, just, you know, just kind of going down the line of what it takes to lead uh, a decent life, you know, starting with just the basics, just three square meals a day and a roof over your head. And then you go from there to healthcare and, you know, just kind of the basics. That's what we've been doing, you know, for centuries. And we should just keep doing more of that and, and leave the tribalism out. That's not helpful. And so I, you know, that's I, to me, you know, uh, uh, try to take an extraterrestrial perspective. You know, you look at Earth from an Archimedean point outside of it. You know, well, we're obviously just one species, but but very much divided. So that kind of divisiveness, that tribalism, has to has to go. Beautifully put, Michael Shermer. Thank you for joining us on Fair Perspective. You're welcome. Nice to see you guys. Yeah. Keep up thank the you. good work. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to join the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform and by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For transcripts of podcast episodes as well as access to exclusive Fair Perspectives content, visit us at fairperspectives.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.